0: Hey, if you've got a Bible, open Acts chapter 4. If you've got a Bible, open Acts chapter 4. Get there quick, because we're going to go there quick. Acts 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you don't have an app on your phone, we'll, we'll have it up on the screens. Um, we doing good this morning? We doing good? Hey, uh, welcome to the Commons. If, if we haven't met, my name's Austin. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is a joy to see your faces. Uh, hey, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, this sermon this morning is half-baked, very much half-baked. I wrote it last night. Um, uh, yesterday in the afternoon, I had a sermon from Exodus 2 and 3 ready for this morning. And yesterday afternoon, as I was kind of reviewing my notes, uh, I, I just felt like the Lord was drawing me to this passage and uh, wanting me to preach from this. And, and so uh, thank my wife, because after dinner, I went down to our basement and wrote this, and she put all of our four crazy kids down to bed by herself. And it sounded like a war zone above me. So, um, But it is half-baked, and so I'm trying to be faithful. We'll see how it goes. If you are new to the commons... Come back next week. I'm sure it'll be much much better. So uh, anyways, Acts chapter 4. If you got it, let me hear you say, I got it. We're going to start in verse uh, 31. It says, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathering together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, I want you to see how this early church in Acts 4 was described. I mean, first thing right out of the gate, we see they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I explained what this means a few weeks ago during our cloud series, but to put it briefly, like if you're a believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. Like if you were in Christ, you've put your faith in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit, you've been marked by the Holy Spirit to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not so much uh, how much of the Holy Spirit do you have, but how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? And so to say that they were filled with the Holy Spirit means that God was powerfully working in and through all of them. His presence was felt uh, when they gathered like this, like outsiders looking in they knew that something was different about these people. Like the reputation of that church wasn't the cool church, wasn't the the, rele, uh, the the relevant church. It wasn't the you know church that served the best coffee. That wasn't the reputation. The reputation was, man, that church has power. Like their God is real. Something is really happening there. There were no nominal Christians. These Christians, it says, were full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God, had their full submission. And this didn't just impact like their church gatherings. It impacted every aspect of their lives. Think about how this impacted their life. Think about how this impacted their families, uh, their marriages, their neighborhoods, their work ethic. I mean, the list. it, it, It wasn't just a Sunday thing. This was an everyday thing. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing that we see. The second is this. They continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You see that in verse 31. They continued to speak the word of God with boldness. When they gathered, uh, whoever was preaching didn't water down the word in order to make it more palatable. No, no, no. Like he spoke the truth boldly. But this is talking about more than just whoever was preaching on Sunday. Look at what it says. It says, they were all. Like this was talking about all the people in that church. They were speaking the word of God with boldness. Who do you think they were speaking to? Well, I'll tell you, their families, their friends, their coworkers, their their neighbors, their their classmates, people they saw in the gym. It says they spoke the word of God with boldness. This is often translated as openly. In other words, these weren't closet Christians. They weren't hiding the fact that they'd staked their whole life on the word of God. They weren't embarrassed by it. They weren't ashamed of it. They were filled with courage. These were, content, these were courageous Christians. Third thing we see is the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Verse 32, the full number of those who believed are of one heart and soul. In other words, everyone was unified. They were of one heart and soul. There were no spectators in this church. Nobody was just sitting, spectating. They were all on mission, and they were all on the same mission. And check this out. They had each other's backs. Look at verse 34. It says, There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Like, that's crazy. This was a community like nobody had seen before. And notice this, nobody was forcing them to do this. This wasn't some form of communism where the leadership was forcing them to do this. No, it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The full number of those who believed, everybody was of one heart and soul. Their hearts were different. Like their hearts were being moved by God in a powerful way. They were of one heart and soul. And then the fourth thing we see is verse 33, and great grace was upon them all. You see that at the end of verse 33? It says, and great grace was upon them all. The Greek word for grace, charis, it means gift or it means favor. In other words, God's favor was on them. The the favor of God was resting on these people in a special way. God was working among them. God was blessing them. In fact, look at verse 33. Uh, It says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. In other words, as the gospel was being shared, people's lives were being powerfully transformed. As a church, their sails were up and the wind was blowing hard. I mean to sum it up, this is this is this is how the church was described. Power, uh, cur- courage, unity, and grace. Power, courage, unity, and grace that's what we see in this church in acts 4 and, and by the way this is what god does in people in his people through jesus like the gospel is powerful this is our inheritance as believers in christ god didn't just send jesus to die on the cross and be raised from the dead so that we could be you know saved from our sins to this future hope one day down the road no i mean that if that's all he did for us oh that would be incredible But God's grace, the gospel's more than that. He didn't just save us to this future hope. No, what Jesus did for us is he's changing everything about our life right now. Power, courage, unity, and grace. And listen to me, I want this to be us. I don't want us to settle for anything less. Power, courage, unity, grace. And hear me out, talk is cheap. I'm not wanting some stupid mission statement or word of the year that gets tucked away in a piece of paper in a drawer and never looked at again. No, I want this to actually be true of us. And stop and think about this for a minute. Like, what if this was us? Power, courage, unity, grace. Like, what if this was us? Like, really us? Like, what if in every way this was us? Can you imagine what God would do? Can you imagine how that would impact this city. Can you imagine how that, how that would impact Michigan State? So many of you go there. So many of you work there. Can you imagine how that would impact Sparrow and McLaren? A lot of you work there. A lot of us go there too. Uh, can you imagine how that would impact the Capitol? Can you imagine how that would impact our schools? Can you imagine how that would impact your families, your marriages, your kids? Power, courage, unity, grace. I mean, listen again, this house described, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Power, courage, unity, grace. But back up a few words in verse 31 because I started about halfway through verse 31. Look at the beginning of verse 31. Throw it up on the screens. What's the first few words? What does it say? And when... They had what? Prayed. And when they had prayed, the NIV translation says, after they prayed. These three words, after they prayed, this is the crux of it all. Like that's the catalyst right there. After they prayed. After. Not before. Not without. After. After. Like this is a cause and effect situation here. If there's no cause, well, then there's no effect. They're correlated. Power, courage, unity, grace. That all came second. It's this that comes first. After they prayed and after they prayed, little little grammar quiz here. Uh, the word they, is that singular or plural? Plural, you passed. It's plural. In other words, it wasn't just one or two people Totally dedicated to praying. I'm so thankful. I, 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 uh, I had this idea. Actually, I'm stealing this idea for somebody else because I heard somebody uh, preach a, uh, a, a sermon called "Pray Like You're 80." Uh, because, man, this it, is true in our church. People in this church in their 80s, it's like they're our best prayer warriors. But it wasn't just the 80 year olds who are praying. It wasn't just one or two people committed to praying. And praying. It says after they, that's plural. And, and it also wasn't just like a bunch of people praying separately in their own time. No. You back up to verse 24, the context here. Peter and John, they'd been arrested for healing this guy, them preaching the gospel. They get out of jail, and so they they come to tell the church what had happened. And in verse 24, it says, And when they heard it, what had happened, it says they lifted their voices together to God. They lifted their voices together. So they were all in the same room doing the same thing. And what were they doing? They were praying. Now everybody look up here for a second because I'm going to give you a line that you want to remember. Prayer is to the church as fuel is to a fire. Prayer is to the church as fuel is to a fire. Have you ever sprayed lighter fluid on a fire before? What what happens when you spray lighter fluid on a fire? It like explodes, right? Uh, Me and and my... uh, uh, frat Brothers in college, we'd, we'd, uh, we'd do these things called, uh, we called them bush parties. I was, went to school in Arkansas, a lot of woods. We'd just go out into the woods and uh, borrow a bunch of pallets from surrounding com- uh, businesses and then uh, uh, make these fires and just hang out all night in the woods. And uh, typically the way the night ended was people were in their uh, camping chairs around the fire and, and falling asleep. And so every once in a while, somebody would walk by with a, a thing of lighter fluid and spray it and it would you know, blow up in somebody's face and they'd wake up, fall out of their chair, Whatever. You know, you spray lighter fluid on a fire, what does it do? It explodes. Prayer has the same effect on the church. Maybe a better way to think about it is how do you start a fire? How do you start a fire? Uh, My wife, Leslie, and I, we're on this survivor kick right now, watching Survivor. Uh, this kind of happens every time this year. Christmas, that week of Christmas to New Year's, um, I'm usually taking that week off. And so Leslie and I were like, man, let's just go crazy this week, all right? Like, let's get the kids down at seven, and then let's, like, stay up way past our bedtime at nine, and, uh, and let's watch, like, let's binge watch Survivor. So we're on season 34 right now. And, um, and so we didn't start with season one this year, guys, all right? I, I don't know if that's why you're laughing, but. Picked up with season 33, now we're on season 34. And uh, one of our favorite things in Survivor is when it gets down to just a few people left and they go to tribal council. Do we have any Survivor fans in here? Okay, uh, they go to tribal council and the vote is tied. What, what do they do to break the tie? They make fire. They take those two people and they set them up and whoever can make a fire the quickest stays in the game. How many of you think you could win the fire making challenge in, in Survivor? Uh, very confident right here and semi-confident right there. I think I, I think I could go up against both of you. But but how do you make a fire? Well, you think about it, you get some tinder, you know, you get some stuff that'll catch fire really easy. You get some tinder, ball it up, you know. And then uh, you know, in, in Survivor, they take they take flint and they try to make a spark with their flint. And once you have a spark in that tinder, what do you do? It's critical. What do you do at that point? You blow on it. I mean, if you're out camping and you got the fire down here, you got the tinder, you put the tinder together, you get a spark going, you know, you got your lighter if you're cheating, whatever, and you get, you get that, you get that spark. The moment you get the spark, what do you do? You get down on your knees and you begin to blow on the fire. And when you blow on the fire, that, that fuels the flame. And as you blow on the fire, it fuels the flame. It gets bigger, catches the tinder around it. So then what do you do? You start to grab other twigs, small twigs, and you start to pile them on top. And then you blow some more on your knees. You blow some more and it fuels the flame and it gets bigger. It catches the twigs. And so you get bigger sticks and you throw it on there and you get bigger sticks and so on until finally you've got this raging you know, fire, this campfire. Listen, prayer has the same effect on the church. In fact, a, a fire can be almost dead. It can just be like sizzling embers. But if you get down on your knees and you blow on it, what happens? It catches fire again. It can come back to life. Prayer has the same effect on the church. But listen to me. Prayer doesn't just impact dying churches. It impacts healthy churches too. I mean, it doesn't take much for a healthy fire to turn into this uncontrollable wildfire. You know, you you, you saw this summer. In fact, we experienced this summer the smoke from all the Canadian wildfires. Like little things start these fires. People being dumb oftentimes starts these massive fires. In college, uh, there's a state park uh, right next to our campus. And so um, sometimes I would go out there uh, to read or, you know, not study sort of whatever. And uh, I'd sit at this picnic table. and There's this one time I'd sit at this, I sat at this picnic table by myself and it was in a phase where I always had a lighter with me because I was slash am a pyromaniac and so I'm sitting there reading and there were these dry leaves on the picnic table and so I get my lighter out because I got distracted and I start lighting them on fire and then I start kind of pushing them together and realize oh they're like catching really easy and it starts to form a fire I blow on it a little bit it gets bigger so there were some tiny twigs on the picnic table I piled them on top next thing you know I got this baby fire going, not even thinking about what I'm doing. So I, I, get, I reach down below me. There's some bigger sticks and I put the sticks up on the picnic table and now the fire's getting bigger. And so then I get up to go get like some big sticks. When I do that, this gust of wind comes through, uh, blows on my fire. And I was like, oh my gosh, I turn around. There's like a two foot flame and it hit me what I was doing. I'm building a fire on a picnic table in a state park. It's not a good idea. So I look around, it, just my luck. There's a state park truck doing his rounds, driving towards me. And I'm like, oh shoot, what do I do? So there's one of those aluminum trash cans. I grab the, the lid to it and I stick it on top of this fire and I sit back down get my book out and act like I'm reading while there's smoke just billowing out. And this guy pulls up next to where I was and he's like, hey man, everything good? And I was like, everything's good here. You know, smoke's billowing out. And, and uh, he acts like he's about to drive off and, and, uh, and right before he does, he stops and says, hey, uh, by the way, you probably shouldn't do that. And I was like, got it, all right, got it. He's very gracious to me. It doesn't take much for a healthy fire to become an uncontrollable wildfire. And listen to me, God doesn't want his church to be a smoldering fire. God doesn't want his church to even be a bonfire. God wants his church to be this uncontrollable wildfire. In fact, Luke 12, Jesus says, I came to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already set ablaze. God doesn't want his church to be able to be contained by these brick walls. God wants his church to be so contagiously set ablaze that everywhere the people of the church move, new gospel fires pop up. God wants his church to be marked by power, courage, unity, and grace. By the way, what's more compelling than that? Like tell me one person in your life who doesn't crave something that works like that. Power, courage, unity, grace, The the church that is marked by those things, it's not small and it's not stagnant. But don't miss this. Prayer is to the church as fuel is to a fire. The church in Acts 4 was marked by power, courage, unity, and grace. The church in Acts 4 was not small and it was not stagnant. The church in Acts 4 was on the move and making waves in the city and beyond. And that's because that church in Acts 4 prayed. Acts 4.31 says, after they prayed. What does it mean they prayed? Don't, don't, don't misunderstand this or get a wrong picture in your mind. Some of you, you are in or you've been in a Bible study or a small group, and, and at the end, you circle up for what I call the, the prayer circle of death uh, because you end up being there forever because like two people just pray way too long, and you're just holding on for dear life to stay awake or get out of that thing. And it comes to you, you don't want to pray, they nudge you, you don't want to pray, you nudge the next person, they nudge you back because it's still your turn to pray, and it's like, it's just the worst, right? That's not what's happening here. Don't picture that. Uh, Again, it says, after they prayed, but we get a picture of what that praying looked like. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had to say to them, or had said to them, and when they heard it, it says, they lifted their voices together to God. God. They lifted their voices together to God. Have you ever realized how often the Bible refers to praying as lifting your voice to God? Have you ever realized how often the Bible refers to praying as crying out or calling out to God? I mean, I'll give you a few examples. Lamentations 2 says, arise, cry out. Cry out in the night, at the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Psalm 28 says, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help. Romans 8.15 says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry Abba, Father. In Luke 18, Jesus is telling this parable about prayer and and challenging us to not give up on on praying. And he says, and will not give, God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. Psalm 116 says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas, my cries for mercy. This is how the Bible most often talks about prayer. But let me ask you, how do we usually pray? I mean, either A, we normally pray very nonchalantly and and if we're honest, pretty superstitiously, like right before a meal or right before we go to bed. I mean, how often is that prayer before a meal, it's like, it's more superstition than it is really like you going after the heart of God. How often is it just the same thing you've said for years, mindlessly said, and you're like, I just feel guilty or I feel weird eating a meal before I pray. That's superstition. That's not going after the heart of God. It's either that or... Maybe it's this or and this. We pray quietly and inaudibly in our mind. Now, does God hear you when, or does, is it wrong to pray quietly? No. Does God hear us when we pray quietly in our head? Absolutely. But how does he want us to pray? How does he tell us to pray? What are the examples that we see in scripture about prayer? In fact, I'd encourage you to do a search in scripture. How often does it talk about prayer as crying out to the Lord? Calling out to the Lord? Lifting your voice to the Lord? Do that search and then do another search. How often does it talk about prayer as whispering to the Lord or praying quietly in your mind to the Lord? Listen, it's not even close. Acts or 4.24, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. So I just quoted Luke 18 and Romans 8 where it talks about Crying out to the Lord in prayer. In both verses, the word translated cry, in the Greek, it actually means to scream. It means to scream. Why does, why does God's word so often talk about prayer like this? Scream, cry out to God. I mean, think about it in the least spiritual way possible. Like, why do we scream? Why do you scream? My, my kids, they have this uh, game they like to play right now. They're, they're in this phase. Uh, again, kids are five, four, two, and nine-month-old. Nine-month-old, doesn't play. She doesn't really do anything. Five, four, and two-year-old. They have this game. I'll get home, and immediately, they just bum-rush me, and they want to play. They call it Monster. They made up the name. I don't know where it came from. But basically, what it means is I go hide. They come find me, and they want me to try my best to scare them. So I jump out and yell, and then they run off scared. So my two-year-old, Trace, He is by far the toughest kid in our family. Uh, You know, he could get hit by a two-by-four or something, and he'll like, ah, that hurt, but then he'll just get right back up and keep going. He's also the easiest uh, to scare in our family. Like, he will freak out, but he loves it. And so uh, a couple weeks ago, we're playing, and I I go upstairs, and I hide in our bedroom behind our bed, and all three kids come in. Uh, uh, Trace first, then Rosie Grace, then Judah, my five-year-old. And I jump out from behind the bed and I just go, blah! And Judah and Rosie Grace, they scream and they run out of the room. Now upstairs, they run out of the room. Judah's room is right here on the right. Around the corner is Rosie Grace's room. I don't know which one they ran into, but they ran into one of those. Trace, he was the last one out of the room. He's screaming, horrified. He runs out. Judah's room there. Rosie Grace's room there. Stairs here. He full sends down the stairs from the top. And the best part about this, Rosie Grace then comes back into the room. I'm still behind the bed getting up. And uh, she is uncontrollably laughing, can't hardly talk, saying, Trace just fell down the stairs. Ah, And we're like, I mean, we heard one thump. He probably hit somewhere in the middle. And then another thump. We have this baby gate leaning up against the wall at the bottom. We heard the baby gate get hit really hard. And so Leslie's downstairs. She runs to check on him. I run to check on him. He's literally laying on the floor just like this. Tears coming out of his eyes and kind of laughing. Not moving, though, for like 45 seconds, and we're like, oh, no, you know, like another hospital visit, here we go. And then he just gets up, and he's like, more monster, and he runs off. Uh. <laughs> but think about, why do we scream? Like, why do we scream? Why do we cry out? Well, it's because we're afraid. We cry out when we're in pain. We, we scream. We cry out when we know there's imminent danger. Like we cry out when our need is urgent. Crying out, it's instinctive. You don't sit there and think, "Mm, I think I'm going to cry out. Ah, you know, unless you're just like full of drama. Some of you do that, but for the most part, it's just instinctive. You don't think about it, you just do it. This is why the Bible so often describes prayer like this. Crying out, it's something that you do in desperation. Crying out is a very humble action, which lends to the question, why don't we cry out to the Lord? And to put it more bluntly, how about we say it like this, why do we pray so little? And I want to say what I say next with grace, but I want to say it with truth. We don't pray because we don't realize how desperate we are. We don't pray because we think way too much of ourselves and our own strength and way too little of our God and his power. We don't pray because we live in such abundance. Like we have so much, like we have so many safety nets in our life that we've, we've learned to rely on those things instead of on God. We don't pray because we have such a small view of ourselves or I'm sorry, a sorry, big view of ourselves. We don't pray because we have such a small view of our sin coupled with a small view of God's righteousness. Like in our Christian culture, we've traded in our God who made us in his image for a God that we've made in our own image. We don't pray because of pride. We don't pray because we have lost sight of the gospel. And when you lose sight of of the fact that we have nothing without Jesus, the natural response is we don't go hard after the heart of Christ. We don't pray. So when they prayed, they lifted their voices together to God. They cried out to God. And what did they pray? When you look at verse 24, it says, When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who, through the mouth of our Father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So uh, there's a lot of notes we could go into here about this prayer, but for time's sake, let me just simplify it down to this so that we get out of this what I think God wants us to see this prayer can be split up into two parts. The first part is verses 24 to 28. The second part is 29 to 30. And in the first part of the prayer, these people are basically saying, God, this is who we know you are. Or more simply, God, you are. That was their prayer. God, you are powerful. You see that in there. God, you are master. God, you are. You are creator, ruler. You're the one with the authority. God, you are speaker. God, you are wise and all-knowing. That that comes from verses 25 to 26. That's prophecy in there. And in verse 27, their prayer shifts from from quoting the prophecy from years before to saying, hey, this is what actually just happened. God, you're wise. You're all-knowing. God, you're gracious. You're loving. It was your plan to let Jesus die so that we don't have to. They lifted their voices first to acknowledge who they knew God to be, God, you are. And then in the second part of the prayer, they they simply say, therefore, God, do these things. They go from God, you are, to God, we need. God, we need you to see their threats. God, we need you to give us boldness. God, we need you to show your power. Listen, their knowledge of God informed their request of God. What we ask of God is a direct reflection of what we know of God. The better you know God, the more you'll ask of him. In other words, what you pray for reveals what you believe about God. So Acts 4 tells us that after they prayed, after they lifted up their voices together to God, after they cried out to God, he filled them and he marked them with power, courage, unity, and grace. So here's my question this morning, and this is why I'm preaching this sermon. What might happen if we prayed like that? What might happen if we lifted up our voices together to God like that? What might happen if we humbly, desperately cried out to God like they did in Acts 4? You know, up to this point, I've left out part of verse 31. Notice this. Before it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and started speaking or continued to speak boldly the Word of God. Before it says that, it says, after they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. What might God be waiting to shake up in your life? What might God be waiting to shake up in our church? What might God be waiting to shake up in our city? After they prayed, prayer is to the church as fuel is to a fire. I've had a lot of people asking me, all right, what does 48 mean? We're doing this new series, two-part series before we go back to Romans. What does 48 mean? Listen, we're calling the series 48 because a few months ago, the Lord uh, laid this question on my heart. What might God do through 48 hours of unceasing, unrelenting prayer? Like what might God do in us as a church through 48 hours of unceasing prayer? What might God do through us as a church, through 48 hours of unceasing prayer? What might happen in our lives? What might happen in our families? What might happen in our marriages? What might happen in our neighborhoods? What might happen in our dorms? What might happen on our teams? What might happen at our workplaces if we came together and prayed for 48 straight hours? And honestly, I don't know, but I want to find out. So here's the deal. Beginning Friday, January 26th at 6 p.m. and ending Sunday, January 28th at 6 p.m., we're inviting you to participate in 48 hours of unceasing, unrelenting prayer. During this 48-hour stretch, we're going to turn our equipping room, which is downstairs, we're going to turn it into a prayer room, and our hope is that during each of those 48 hours, that room is filled with people praying, asking God to powerfully move in our church, in our homes, in our city, on our campus, and beyond. So here's how you can participate. First, on Friday night at 6 p.m., we're going to start it all right here in this room. Uh, We're going to kick off that 48 hours with everyone together in our auditorium, praying and worshiping. And the theme of that first hour is going to be this, God, you are. Because remember, what we know about God lends to what we ask of God. And so that first hour is going to be themed God you are we 're all going to be in this room then on Sunday night at four thirty until we close out that forty eight hours uh, again we 're going to meet in this room together, uh, praying and worshiping and the theme of that final hour hour and a half is going to be God we need God we need and by the way we 're not trying to be fancy with this we 're not trying to be cool with this it is uh, it 's going to be simple in here uh, we 're going after the heart of God, nothing else uh, we 're not I mean, again, like their reputation wasn't the cool church. We're not trying to be the cool church. You should probably know that by now if you don't come here. Their reputation was that church was full of power. That's what we want our reputation to be. We say we worship a God of power. Man, then we should be full of power. God should be powerfully working in you, in me, and through us. That's what we're going after. So the first way you can participate is by coming to those things. The second way is, so starting at 7 p.m. Friday after we finish up in here, all the way until 4.30 p.m. Sunday when we come back in here, uh, the prayer room downstairs will be open. And listen, we want that room to be filled with people. Uh, Our hope is that at least uh, 20 people are down there every hour between Friday and Sunday. And each hour is going to have a specific theme for what we want to pray for, like the lost, or God, give us a hunger for your word, or Man, heal marriages or God, convict us of sin so much, let there be this wave of repentance and conviction in our church or God, give us boldness and courage. Each hour is gonna be themed. And so here's your action step. Uh, Whether you're gonna participate or not, whether you're confident you wanna do it or or you know you don't wanna do it, I want you to pull out your phone because I wanna show you something. Pull out your phone really quick. Uh, Open the, the camera app, scan the QR code. I just want you to see where this is. You can act on it now, or you can just blend in with everybody else and not do anything. That's fine. No pressure. But I want you to get out your phone, scan the QR code. You'll see about four links down. It says, sign up for 48 hours of prayer. And so the action step for you is uh, to sign up for time slots to pray. And here's my challenge. I want to challenge you to sign up for three time slots. Three hours. And, and you might think, whoa, hold up. That's a lot. Well, first of all, I don't, I don't necessarily mean three consecutive hours. You can be that if you want. Um, but it's going to go a lot faster than you realize. And again, we're going after the heart of God here. So let's go all in and do this. I want you to sign up for three hours. Um, and all of our staff, all of our elders have already signed up for three hours, including, including all the night shifts they're taking. Uh, So, staff or elders will be at all of the mid through the night shifts. You can join me at 4 and 5 a.m. Saturday morning, the same time on Sunday morning that weekend. It's the first time my wife's hearing that. She realized. And here's the thing. It'd only take 320 people doing three hours to have 20 people during each hour. It's not many. We've capped Each time slot at 20, but we'll open up room as needed. What might God do through 48 hours of unceasing, unrelenting prayer? I don't know, but I'm ready to find out. Prayers to the church as fuel is to a fire. I'm praying that we would be uncontrollably contagious like a wildfire. Everywhere we go, new gospel fires start. As we're marked by power, courage unity, and grace. Let me pray for us.